Good? John chapter 3, we're going to look at our relationship with God. I know that sounds very broad, we'll narrow this thing down, but the legal basis of our relationship with God. To do that, we, we of course, as with everything, is you need a perspective, uh, you need a place to, to stand, to view, and make definitions. In broad terms, you know, as we homeschool our kids, we try to give them a Christian worldview. You see the eyes, or you see the world, through the eyes of the Bible. That's a certain perspective. It's a, we just call it a worldview. When we answer certain questions, we need a starting point. You know, we all come from different backgrounds and different places, and we need to make sure that we all are thinking a certain way. And biblically speaking, our relationship with God begins this way. John chapter 3, and we know verse 16, it tells us how to be saved. The verses directly after that tell us why we have to be saved. It tells us where we all start. Verse 17 says, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He didn't come to condemn, but as we learn here, it's because we're already condemned. Verse 18, He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If you go slow through that, you realize that in God's eyes, because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, every human being comes into this earth with a major problem. They're born in sin, shaped in iniquity. What that means is what, that because of what Adam and Eve and the choice they made in the garden, we, we really don't probably have a very good mental picture of how devastating that was. How big of a fall from where they were, clothed in glory, that after they sinned, even the very creation changed. Remember what God told them, that now as you work the land and till it, there's going to be thorns and thistles? Those things didn't used to exist. Even creation changed through the fall. And when sin came into the world, there was nothing good about it. There was death, or I should put it this way, everything tended toward death. Uh, Mankind, creation, everything. It changed, and it had this gravitational pull towards death. And because of that, mankind was in trouble. Huge trouble. And how's God going to get them back? These verses in John chapter 3 make the point that because of that, we all have this problem of this innate sin nature in us. We should probably stop here for a second. This is why Jesus did not have any of his earthly carpenter father Joseph as a part of him. The reason Joseph did not impregnate Mary and God used the result of that to die for sin is because Joseph would have imparted his sin nature into that seed, or that that egg. That conception would have been tainted just like yours and just like mine. It would have been no different. And that may sound strange to a lot of people. We're going to go through some Bible verses that really point that out. The Virgin Mary story is not just so we have another miracle to add to the long list. It happened that way because God could not have something perfect, holy, and pure that was going to die for all of us if man had a part of it coming into the earth. It had to be separate. It's why the Holy Ghost, pure, holy, 
conceived with Mary. And that's what the result of, or I should say that the result is Jesus. And he was born, we, we say it as was supposed the father or the son of Joseph. I mean, technically speaking, Joseph really didn't have anything to do. He raised him. He helped raise him as a good father. Let's hope he did, but he did not have the physical relations that brought him into this earth. Because that sin nature that started with Adam, that cursed everything, could not have been allowed into the Holy of the Holies, God's only Son. So as Jesus goes to the cross, we now have that perfect Lamb, that unblemished, sparkling clean, to take the place as a substitution for all of our sin. And to, to put a, a stamp on what we're dealing with here in our beginning point, look at verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. What that tells us is every single person has the wrath of God abiding on them. That's the starting point. That's our perspective. Everybody starts that way. It is only when that person accepts Christ that that wrath is pacified and the blood of Jesus cleanses that person. That's an important thing to start with. Our relationship with God. There's a lot of people that think they're skippity doo down the streets of America and they're thinking, I've really never done anything that bad. I'm a pretty good person, so God's probably okay with me. Maybe they don't even know God and they're thinking in their minds, I've never done anything to Him. Why would He be mad at me? He has no problem with me. And what does that thought process not take into account? That the sin nature that Adam brought in here was stamped on that person as they came through the birth canal. That's simply the way it happens. That's what took place in the Garden of Eden. And that's why it comes all the way down to all of us. Now with that... Now you start to see a lot of the things about the Bible and why it's written the way it is and why it starts out with Jesus coming from the Virgin Mary. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. I think this says, we're going to look at a couple different places that that say it in a little different way. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2. And verse 14, it says, For as much, and that word for as much means it's as the same. In the same way that the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He, Jesus, also Himself likewise took part of the same. So what's that sentence saying? As much as you are human, as much as I am human, Jesus also was human. I don't ever want to confuse anybody, so we have to throw out there, He was also Divine. Perfectly God and yet perfectly human at the same time. This verse says that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. We should probably maybe phrase it in this way here. After reading verse 14, I think you kind of have to think along these lines. When it came time for God to Redeem mankind. Legally speaking, 
I don't want to say the word could because he can do anything, but was he going to? It seems like the way he wrote this Bible and he presented it to us, he was not going to do this. Stand off in only God form outside the realm of man and wipe away sin. Legally speaking, these verses go on to say here, just as much as you and I are flesh, he put on flesh to come here. And the rest of verse 14 says, so that he could destroy the works of the devil. And here's what that indicates. It seems somebody in human flesh had to undo what Adam did. That makes sense? Adam was a man. And Adam made the choice, the sin, to turn over to Satan. He disobeyed God. This is why the book of Romans uses the phrase, the first Adam and the second Adam. And it says that the first Adam brought in sin. And the second Adam is the one who redeemed us. That through one man, Adam, all have fallen under sin. But through one man, life can be given to everybody who accepts him. And what that seems to indicate is God, at least he wanted to do it this way. He wanted to show people how legal he was in this event. Man screwed it up. In the form of man, I'll fix it. And it's why when those Roman soldiers crucified his body up there, they weren't just crucifying God. They were crucifying mankind. In the form of man, he was going to take care of this. Look at verse 15. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. He didn't come as an angelic being, as a, just a divine being. Comma, but he took on him who? Seed of Abraham. That's humanity. And it's a very special person, tribe of humanity. God made this promise to Abraham. It's going to happen through you, sir. It's going to happen through you. 2,000 years in advance. That's why they were keeping track of these genealogies of everybody that comes out of him. We've got to make sure that when he does come, we can trace him back to Abraham. That's why your New Testament starts out with these words. Abraham begat Isaac. And Isaac had Jacob. And Jacob had... Judah, and it goes all the way down 42 generations to Jesus. Legally speaking. That's what this verse is saying. He didn't take on the nature of angels. He took on the nature of mankind because mankind screwed this up. And you get the feeling that God gave this earth to man. That's what it says in the Psalms. Everything is the Lord's, but He gave the earth to the children of men. And when they screwed it up, legally speaking, he was not going to, what's the word, remove their authority from him. He went and became one of them and legally did it through them. That makes sense? Verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. It behooved him to be made like his brethren. One of those people, the Israelites, the Jewish nation, it was going to be one of them. It puts it in the language that he was like that high priest or one of those priests and That's what God had those priests always doing, performing sacrifices. Well, he had himself, his son, divine nature, become one of them 
and then carry out all the requirements. See, the priests themselves, they could never do what Jesus did. They could never offer a sacrifice so perfect that it would take care of your sin and mine. Couldn't do it. The Bible teaches it just covered up. When they would sacrifice a goat, a lamb, a sheep, a turtle dove, whatever, it kind of covered the sin the way the Bible talks about it, and it pushed off the wrath. Covered their sin just kind of enough so that it would satisfy God a little bit, but it never cleansed it. But when Jesus came, and he, this book of Hebrews goes on to teach us he is just, he is the high priest. And that's why we don't have any more, because he is the best, and since he never dies, again, there's no need to have another priest. In the Old Testament times, the priests were always dying every, whatever it was, 30, 40, 50 years. So you had to have another one, and another one, and another one. We don't anymore. He carried out his own sacrifice. As we learned last week, he carried his own blood into the heavenly places to make atonement for us. Thank goodness. So here's the the first thing we're, we're laying down as groundwork. When Adam sinned, and this thing really fell, God did not, from universe's distance, just wave a magic wand and erase sin. He came into our world in our form, in our likeness. Uh, Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 3. Romans 8. Verse 3. For what the law could not do, and the law was what gave men the idea, the notion that you're not right with God, you're breaking His commandments. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. So that verse tells us, that the reason God sent or took care of sin in the form of humanity was because he wanted to condemn this sin in the flesh. See, it was his flesh that went onto that cross. And this is what God teaches through the Old Testament. It was substitution. God appropriated all of our sin onto his flesh, crucified that thing, tortured it, beat it to a pulp. There's that strange verse in the Bible that says that the father was pleased to bruise his own son there. And as a dad, that, that is a hard verse for me. But I'm, I'm not God. He wanted to take care of sin. And he wanted to take care of sin so legally, he put it into flesh, the same flesh that brought sin into the earth. That's the same flesh that had to take care of it. Angels weren't going to do it. God only in God form from universes far away wasn't going to do it. He came among them, as this verse said, in the likeness of sinful men. It doesn't mean that he sinned. It means he was just legally one of us. You could look at it this way, that in our Constitution, you have to be a citizen here to be elected president. And if if there was a Saudi Arabian prince that just they had up his mind, he wanted to be president of the United States and he came over here and wanted to do it. Even if 51% of the people voted for him, it would not be legal. There would be something wrong according to the law 
with that election, with that process. He has to be born here, one of us. That's a pretty decent simile picture of what's taking place here. For God to take care of sin, He has to do it in the form of humanity. That's what these verses are kind of teaching us. Let's now, we've, we've, we've hammered that enough. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If nothing else, what we just talked about, it, it may give us some insight, it may ring a few bells when you start to read about the story of Jesus and you know why God had to wait maybe 30 years while he was growing up in that carpenter shop and spending time with Joseph and Mary. Why didn't he just wave this wand and take care of this sin thing? He had to become one of us. The only way you get here, you have to be born of a woman. Adam and Eve were created by God. Everybody after that, they got here in the same way. The birth canal. Everybody has to come that way. That's why the woman is so different. People only get here in that manner. Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse... Look at verse... Let's see, 16 and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So that verse is talking about the enmity, that problem that exists between God and mankind, that sin. It talks about it as enmity. On the cross, God destroyed that enmity. If you accept Jesus and you go through the cross, you can get to God. Next verse. He came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners. Now that sentence says that you're no more strangers and foreigners. What does that indicate that you used to be? Strangers and foreigners. That person skippity doo down the street thinking they're just fine with God because they've never punched God in the face or they've never told God specifically off to go fly a kite, that doesn't mean they're okay with God. They are a foreigner and they are a stranger to God by default. Even though they've never done anything to do that, it, they did. They, they were born as a human being. And Adam's sin nature on the earth makes everybody foreigner and a stranger to God until except what Jesus did. Verse 19, We are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. Now there's a word, citizens. What word, what language helps us understand citizen? I'll tell you what assumption I make. As soon as I hear the word, the word citizen, I think legal. There's laws. The difference between a citizen and a non-citizen is in the eyes of the law, of the government, that person has certain rights. A citizen. Um, we have a, an immigration debate that rages in our country, and one thing that we hear a lot is that we are a nation of immigrants. That gets bandied around and thrown around as as if, you and I all just got off a boat or crawled under a fence or whatever, and that's how we all got here. It really isn't true to say we're a nation of immigrants. We're a nation of 
citizens. If you're a citizen, you have every legal right that every other citizen has here. Every one. But if you're not a citizen, if you're not legally here, then we have a problem. And there are certain things you shouldn't do while you're here. You definitely shouldn't vote. You're not a citizen. There's other things that shouldn't pertain to you. We'll be nice, we'll shake your hand, but there are legal differences between a citizen and someone who's not. And this is saying that what Jesus did for you is he made you a legal citizen with the saints. You know where your citizenship really lies? Exactly right. Heaven. The Bible calls us ambassadors. Sometimes it calls us uh, strangers here on the earth. We're traveling through here. We really don't even belong here. You ever felt that way? Walking through a day in, in the week and thinking, I don't even belong here. And that doesn't mean you think you're better than other people. It just means that this thing that God has done on the inside of you, if you're around a lot of other people who haven't had that done on the inside of them, you can feel like you don't belong. And that's because our citizenship, really, it's in heaven. I mean, we're going to spend all eternity there. You're only here for a, a vapor, a whisper, as the grass drieth in the sun. You are here for a very short time. Our citizenship is with the saints, and look at this language, and of the household of God. Household? That is family language, isn't it? Family. That word family has something to do with blood relation. When we think of family, you may or may not think of something nice. Maybe you have family you don't really like to be around. Uh, my mom has 12 brothers and sisters. We have a blast when we're together. When I think of the word family, I think of a gym full of about 200 people and all we do is laugh. Make fun of somebody, make fun of me, you, and we just take turns and we have a blast. And we eat a lot. Family. We, we all belong there. We all have, we all came from grandma and grandpa somehow. And this has the same idea. If you belong to God, you have that word family associated. Now again, you're not born that way. You don't come into this earth as part of God's family. Quote, you hear this all the time. And you hear it from people that are, are Christian. We're all God's children. Okay, that is not in your Bible. You are God's children after the blood's been applied to you. Absolutely. Let's give you your 12 introductory spankings. Let's give you a, a punch in the arm. You're now one of us. You're in the club. But until the blood is applied to you, even Jesus said to some people, you are the children of the devil. We're not all God's kids. We're not of the same family until, until we get born again. Then we're, we're all in there and we're all the same. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond nor free. We're the same in there. That's family. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So we, we, we now know where we started with God. Not in a good position. Because of what Adam and Eve did, we had to have the blood applied to us. And now once we do, the Bible starts using languages like you have citizenship, you have a familial relationship with him, you're part of the family. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God. When you get born again, what part of you changes? My first thought is, how'd this all go screwy? Back in the Garden of Edom, God told Adam, he said, you guys eat of this. And in the day you eat of it, you will die. We know how that story went. They ended up, they ended up eating it, and it, yet it tells us Adam lived 930 years. And he didn't eat that in the 929th year. I'm guessing, it seems, he ate it relatively early on in life. I thought he was supposed to die. He died instantly in the spirit. Something on the inside of him that was created to live forever. It died. And that's what they realized, my goodness, we're naked, there was a problem, and they tried to cover themselves. They died spiritually. This verse tells us that we have received the, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God. And that's the part that changes. It gets reborn, remade, when we accept Jesus. When we become part of the family of God again, He renews that spirit on the inside of you. See, this body, no matter what we do, it's always decaying and getting a little bit older. God reaches in and He does a miracle of health now and then. And he may get it, that may get us to 90 or 105, something like that. But we don't have a whole lot of biblical reason to expect that he's going to give me the miracle of living to be 930 like Adam. Just the opposite. The Bible tells us man's days are 120. That's why people really don't live up there. Our flesh is always dying, but that spirit on the inside, that's the part that lives forever. And look at what it says in verse 12 about this spirit comma, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. You know what your spirit does on the inside? It teaches you. These, The verse above it and the verse below 12 tell you that when you want to know something about God, it's your spirit that communes with His spirit. They bear witness one with another. They search things out. It's your spirit that has a direct relationship with the Father. The Spirit. When our spirit is reborn, it is through the Spirit that we start to learn all about our new family. We learn about God. Do you realize that reading your Bible, once you're born again, different? Jesus once told somebody that unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. He said that to somebody. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. That's why you can talk to an unsaved person about things in the Bible. And you get that strange, starry-eyed look off into the distance, and they're wondering, well, who am I talking to? They can't even understand what you're saying sometimes. When that mind is born again... God renews it. And you begin to, through the Spirit, the scales fall off your eyes and you begin to learn things about God. Now, um, let's go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 
14. So what we learn at the beginning, we all come into this world in the same, with the same problem. We're alienated from God, the sin nature. There's a barrier between us and God, and it is that sin nature. When we receive Christ, and that blood cleanses us, and we're born again, it's our spirit that is revived. It is our spirit that helps us to learn what our relationship is with our Father. And look how some of this comes out in these verses. Romans four, uh, 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. When you're led by the Spirit, that means you do some following. God doesn't grab you by your ear and drag you. It is up to you to learn what God wants you to do, how you are to act, where you are to go, what you are to do, and as you follow, that's what another way of looking at you are led, as you follow the Spirit of God, you become the child, the son, or the daughter of God. Now you're moving into a certain relationship with God. As you are led by the Spirit, these verses start to tell us, I become, I become one of his children. Verse 15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That spirit of adoption, that's a legal word. It's intentionally legalistic. The it's a pretty good analogy of how adoption works in our culture, our society today. Somebody who can never even have known a mother, a married couple, can be adopted by them. And at first, there may not be a great relationship. In fact, it's possible that they may not know each other well at all and they may not even get along. But as they spend time together, and as the spirit of that household starts to mesh with that new kid, new child that's brought in, they become every way possible, as much a son or a daughter, as any natural born child. Because adoption is legal. Go to courts when it comes to certain things over this issue and you will see how adoption is legal. And you know what else adoption requires at the beginning? Purchase price. God adopted all of us. And he did that through a purchase agreement. The death of his first begotten, his only begotten son. Verse 16, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. If you don't feel like you really are God's child, I would implore you to spend time with His Spirit. It's the Spirit that bears witness with our spirit. If I shut my spirit off with God's Spirit, there's no communion there. There's no getting to know. There's no intimacy. And just as that adopted child comes into that household, the more time they spend with that adoptive family, the more they become one of them. Their spirit becomes one. It becomes one. They may legally take on their last name. It may take some months, maybe even some years, 
for them to develop the spirit of their last name in behavior, in attitude, in comportment. You spend time with the spirit. And that's what this verse teaches us. Look at verse 17. If you spend time with the Spirit, you become the children. In verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Heirs. There's another legal word. What does that word imply? H-E-I-R. Inheritance. Inheritance is a legal way to express of something that passes down to me through relationship. Through legal relationship. That even if a child moves to the other half of the earth, you go to the jungles of Indonesia, and if your parents or remaining forebears pass away, there is an inheritance that the law starts looking for. They start looking you up. You may not have spoken to your parents or whoever is passing something down to you through inheritance. But the law knows who you are. The law will look for you. And if they don't, you come looking for it when you find out about it and you can make a legal demand that that's mine. Legally. And if there's any judge worth their salt, they have to give it to you. Because of legal requirements. This verse says, the Spirit bears witness. You get to know me, the Father says, and you become my child. And if you're my child, if you're a son or a daughter, then it says you're an heir. So if we're heirs with God or to God, he's, we're the benefactor of what he has. How does this work? What is this relationship like? What are the specifics? I have an inheritance with the creator of the universe. Now partly, I think, of what is contained in this verse is the, there is a portion that this is talking about, a time of rewards in the afterlife, if that's the way you want to say it. But that's not all that it's talking about. Because as an heir, that legal Language means at all times I have a certain relationship with him. At all times. It goes on to say that I'm a joint heir with Christ. What have we learned through our Bible? Where is Jesus at this moment? He's at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible teaches us why he's there. Because he's the mediator of this new covenant with Christians and he is there to tell the Father, to whisper in his ear, that one there, that, that's, that's one of mine. My blood purchased that one. He has legal standing to come talk to you. We're joint heirs with him. We have the same legal standing because of our relationship with Jesus. We're joint heirs with him. He sits at the right hand of the Father. That's one reason you and I have access to go to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16 tells us. We go pray to our Father. We expect certain, certain hearing with the Lord because of the blood that we carry. That blood that has cleansed us, God not only accepts that people, that's one reason it is so important, I think, 
to study God's plan from the beginning to the end of the book. You see how much God has invested in it. And when you see that, you realize that paid for me. Now I know how God looks at me. He put all that work into protecting Israel through all those times to make sure they were not wiped out, to make sure the Messiah, the seed of Abraham, would get here so that it could crawl up on that cross, pay for the sin of humanity. Resurrected from the dead, sits at the right hand. He did all of that through 4,000 years. It's not a small thing. When we go to the Father in the name of His Son, we're carrying an awfully big card with us. The credit card of the Father doesn't get rejected. He created everything. He is the creator of the universe. And we are joint heirs with His Son through adoption. And adoption is a legal term. Let's go to Galatians chapter 4 and we'll close this down. Galatians chapter 4 and there are six or seven verses here that kind of say everything that we've, we've looked at. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. He's making a distinguishment between one kid that's in the house who's a servant and another one who is an heir. The, the legal inheritance is going to one kid. And, and in, especially these times, in biblical times, there was a lot of buying and selling of people. You could buy yourself some servants. And if you wanted to, and it became a little bit of that case in Abraham's day that Eliezer, he became for a good while almost Abraham's son. If that person served so well and the relationship grew and then there really wasn't an error, that servant could become a son. But he is making a distinguishment here that you could have a three-year-old little kid who bears the last name of the master. And he is an heir, but he doesn't differ much from the son because why? Well, look at verse 2. But he is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. The tutors and governors do what? They teach. They tell you how to act in dad's presence, how to act when you're walking down the street, when you go shopping, when you're driving dad's car, when you get out of his limo, you don't spit on the sidewalk. You don't chew gum. You act a certain way. The tutors and the governor tell people how to behave. They teach them until they get to be a certain age and the father says he's old enough. He can legally now, maybe he can drive my car. Maybe he can purchase certain things. Verse 3, Even so we, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. It's talking about us before we were saved. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son. How did he get here? Made of a woman. There it is. God was going to redeem mankind with one of our own members. This, hate to jump around here, the book of Ruth, that kinsman redeemer had to be a relationship to redeem and to purchase Ruth's inheritance. That's what that story is. A kinsman redeemer. It couldn't be a, another person outside of the country. It had to be one of her tribe or Naomi's tribe. 
kinsman redeemer. That's why Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He was made of a woman, made under the law, to do what? To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. It's all legal language, but God made sure that the redemption came through our flesh and blood, or one of us here on the earth. And He did it so that the same law that was applied to us, you know, through those Ten Commandments that we couldn't keep, Jesus did keep it. And because He did, we won, if we choose to follow Him, we win the adoption to go right along with Him. Adoption of sons. Verse 6, And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There's that relationship building. His Spirit and yours. Last verse. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You see how God builds his case. And it's consistent all through the scriptures. The way that he purchased us, purchased mankind through blood, and he did it with himself becoming fleshly like we are. When he purchased us, our spirit was reborn. That spirit that died in the Garden of Eden, it was reborn and we begin a relationship with our Father. That relationship may not be mature in the first day. In fact, it's likely not. It's going to take some time. So you read your Bible, you talk with God as you drive to work, you talk to God on your lunch break, you spend time with Him and you learn about all these amazing things He has for us. It teaches us. That spirit is like a governor, a tutor that says, you know, this stuff is really yours. As soon as you get a little older, I won't be driving the limo, you will be. Maybe you can even paint it whatever color you want. That spirit teaches us. Till we get to be a certain maturity and we become a son or a daughter. And when you get there, those verses say you are an heir. An heir to the creator of the universe. Now that's not a bad ending. That's pretty cool. Where we will spend our time all eternity in the mansions that he has built. Would not surprise me a bit when we get to heaven. We have legal addresses. There's yours, there's yours. You go down... 8th Street, three golden trees to the left. Legal. He seems to be this way throughout his entire Bible. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for what you have contained in your word and what you teach us through your spirit. We pray, Lord, that each one of us would grow closer to you this week and the months that are coming. We pray that you help us, Lord, to to read our Bible, to learn what is ours, as it says, the things that have been freely given to us. And help us, Lord, to comport ourselves as sons and daughters, as your heirs, so that we might make you proud. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to walk with us. Show us your will. In Jesus' name, amen.